Okay, we're going to get started here on the uh, retail panel discussion. So welcome, everybody. I'm Jace Bankhead. I'm with Legend Partners, a broker there, and I'm excited to be with you all today. Um, you're pointing at somebody. Can't hear me? Okay, let's try that again. Sorry, getting used to the microphone. Right. You know, my American Idol has got to get started. Okay, uh, a couple of housekeeping items. S super glad you're all here for the retail discussion. Obviously, there's a bunch of other breakouts that are, all, are also going on at the same time. What they're going to do is record all of these, the audio for all of them, so that if you're miss, you know, if you're here and you want to hear about the multifamily or whatever the case may be, they'll turn this into a podcast that you can listen to and stream later, so you can catch up on what's going on in the other breakouts. As part of that, we're also being recorded audio only, so we're all feeling bad we wore suits today. But um, I don't think you'll ever see this many retail guys in uh, suits. So, you know, take a picture if you want. But it's being recorded. Just try to be respectful of that so we get a good, clean recording. And uh, yeah, we're excited. So welcome again. We've got a panel of uh, four guys here. I'm going to give them each a chance to introduce themselves. And then we'll jump into some questions. We obviously have some questions that we've discussed that we thought would be worthwhile, but more important to all of us is that if there's specific issues or questions or things you're all interested in uh, in having the panelists address, there's a QR code on your table. If you scan that and text a question in, it will come to the iPad uh, for me as the moderator. Um, Troy's telling me I'm supposed to filter the stuff from Mountain West for content. So we'll, uh, we'll keep that in mind. And uh, with that in mind, let's Go down, start with you, Doug. Maybe just tell us a brief introduction and just go down the line. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Doug Burrell. I'm with uh, CBRE Debt and Structure Finance here in Salt Lake. I've been with the firm for almost 20 years, uh, arranging debt and equity financing for all types of commercial real estate, including retail, of course. I'm Danny Woodbury uh, with Woodbury Corporation, Senior Vice President of Leasing over all of our uh, retail office and industrial properties. And I'm Troy Hardy. I was told to eat the mic. That sound good? Um, I'm a, a commercial broker with Mountain West Commercial, specializing in retail and investment. I'm Tanner Olson at Legend Partners, uh, broker partner, specialize uh, tenor at landlord representation, and I fake being a land guy on the side. At least he's honest, so that's good. Okay. Um, Start things off, just kind of a general question, catch up on how things are going in our market. Uh, Danny, if you want to pick this one off, uh, what are some of the recent trends you've observed in Utah's real, uh, retail real estate market, and how do you expect these trends to continue or change in the near future? Perfect. Thanks. Well, maybe first to explain my perception on what's going on in retail. Woodbury is unique. We have property in five different um, asset classes. So... I think the title that made it onto the agenda is Retail No, It's Not Dead, which I think is like the worst title ever. I think a better one would be Retail It's Not Dead, It's Reborn, because that I feel like better captures the sentiment of what's going on with shopping centers in the state of Utah and more broadly across, uh, across the market. Uh, I think we've coming off of a few decades where retail was sort of the ugly stepsister. No, a lot of people didn't want to touch it. Um, that's a dramatization, but I think compared to some other property types, that was what was going on. And it's, it's flipped, and it's flipped sort of dramatically, and I think it's caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, I think one of the trends we're seeing right now is scarcity. 
Uh, scarcity in particular in available space. You know, vacancies in, along the Wasatch Front are at an all-time low. I know in our portfolio, we have about 10 million square feet of retail. We have never seen vacancies this low in our 103-year history, ever. Uh, so what's driving that? I mean, it's population growth, it's job growth, uh, it's the stimulus. You know, we can look at our, you know, we get great sales data from our malls. We can look at the performance from a sales per square foot productivity of our retailers, you know, 2019, 2022. And on average, they're up 35 to 40%. Those are dramatic numbers. I mean, that is fueling all of the growth in demand. There is an abundance in demand, very little new supply that's come on the market. And so that's creating a lot of shifts. Uh, for the first time, at least in my shorter career, this is a landlord market. Landlords are driving the rates. Rents are increasing. Uh, if we had this discussion last year, I think a key thing we, were talk, we talk about are cost inflation. You know, costs were going up dramatically. They seem to have plateaued. We haven't seen any decreases. But because of those increases in uh, construction costs, uh, we've been able to push rental rates, especially in new development. Um, I think retailers have realized now that if they want to move ahead, they need to pay higher rents. I think you've probably seen that historically, like in, in restaurants or some pad buildings. But I think now that's transitioned into like mid boxes. I remember not long ago, you know, pad buildings were full, but there was uh, lots of vacancy in these mid box buildings. And people were wondering, you know, who, who in the world are ever going to fill all these 20, 30, 40,000 square foot boxes? The amazing thing now is like in the Wasatch Front, they're pretty much all full. And it's a variety of users who have taken it. And even the national mid-box retailers, the Ross, the Petco, the Ultas, who have been so intransient for so long that they don't pay above a certain rent. You know, I remember Ross saying, they, I'll never pay double-digit rent. That was only a few years ago. And it's totally shifted. And it's shifted in the past six to nine months. Uh, Petco deal in the mid-20s in Utah. I think, what in the world? Like, where did that come from? Uh, you have a situation where retailers are coming in and trying to look at your lease expirations and offer you really aggressive rents to kick out your existing tenants. I mean, I just, we just had an experience with a, a local retailer in 30,000 square feet. A national group came in, oh, that lease is expiring. We'll pay you 60% more than what they're paying. You went to the local group and said, look, uh, you got to match that rent. And occasionally, you know, in a negotiation, you ask something from the other side, thinking there's no way they're ever going to accept that. And they took it, which is amazing. So we're seeing in a few instances, we're able to increase rents 40, 50% on lease renewals. Now, that's not across the board by any means, but that type of stuff is happening. And it feels like we're in the industrial world all of a sudden with rents going up that dramatically. So it's definitely shifting. You know, we're looking at some of our properties. Woodbury is unique, you know, since we do different property types. One of the strategic things we had been doing over the past five, six years was buying struggling retail centers as covered land play. Saying, oh, we can manage the retail for the next few years, knowing we're going to redevelop this property. We're now getting to that point on several of these properties where, you know, we went short-term on our leases, put on short-term debt. We're like, okay, are we going to pull the trigger on this redevelopment, turning it into housing? All of a sudden, we're saying, you know what? Let's keep it retail. Let's, let's, release this thing at dramatically higher rent. So I think those are some of the, the, the high-level observations we're seeing. Any other thoughts from the rest of you on that? Just kind of globally, global take on what's going on. Okay, uh, maybe, oh, sorry, go ahead, Troy. Amen. <laughs> yeah, touche. Um, <clears throat> maybe a question for uh, Troy and uh, 
Tanner is, is agents that are you know, doing a lot of work with tenants. Um, are there any specific retail subsectors, you know, grocery or restaurants, et cetera, that are currently performing particularly well? And on the flip side, any that you see as performing poorly or, you know, on the ropes? Uh, yeah, I'll just jump in first. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of medical tenants entering grocery shopping centers. It's no longer you're buying just soft goods or getting your haircut or getting your lunch. Um, now your local shopping center is also your primary care physician. It's your optometrist. It's your dentist. It's any medical thing that you can possibly think of creatively trying to create convenience and almost eliminating some of those marketing dollars that previously went to their marketing budget are now just, you don't need to market when you have you know thousands of trips a day between people attending the gym and people attending the grocery store. Um, we're seeing a lot of just medical across the board entering, you know, general retail. Yeah, a lot of consumer trends changed pre-COVID. Um, you know, retail shopping habits changed with the advent of the internet, right? A lot of things uh, kind of changed in that, in that side of things. Uh, Boppist became uh, a very common thing with a lot of retailers. They learned quickly that they needed to uh, be able to to adapt and, and cover both sides of, of the brick and mortar and online side. Um, but those who have done really well right now are those who are taking advantage of this shop down that's occurring. You know, anytime we have rising costs, um, we end up uh, taking a, like a Whole Foods customer and, and making them into a Walmart customer, right? Whether, you're, uh, um, whether you kind of see it and acknowledge it yourself or not, this is happening around us. We're, we're starting to pay a little more attention to the products and the, and the price of the products that we're paying. Anyway, so, so retailers who are maybe off-brand or value-centric, those are the retailers that are really succeeding right now. And then I look at fast food. I mean, our, our, the, the, our habits have changed, right? I mean, we no longer um, look at dining out the way we once did. Um, it's, it's crazy how many drive-throughs are showing up, right? QSRs who never, ever dreamt of, of having a drive-through now have drive-throughs. Um, drive-through fast food tenants, rather than have one drive-through, they now have two. And in addition to the two, they now have um, to-go parking and um, you know online delivery parking. So we, we've really changed uh, quite a bit um, in that sector as well. Perfect. <clears throat> um, thanks. So Danny had mentioned, uh, which is a trend I think all of us have, are seeing, is just the increase of, of rates and the, the occupancy cost for the end user. Um, Doug, a question for you as the guy that's working on loans and financing for, you know, both the developers and, and landlords, as well as, you know, looking at uh, the tenants situation. Obviously, you know, you're looking at these increased costs that they've got to bear. What, what kind of things are lenders uh, and capital markets looking or seeing in the last you know, year or so as, as costs have really kind of gone crazy? Right. Um, so I don't think it's any uh, surprise to anyone in the audience here that um, from a capital perspective, rates are up dramatically over the last year, um, which obviously impacts the the level of financing that one can achieve, uh, compounded with uh, the rising construction costs, et cetera, puts downward pressure on proceeds unless you can uh, achieve sufficient rent growth to support it. Because in today's environment, uh, debt coverage ratio is the metric that defines and dictates what kind of proceeds you can uh, and accomplish. Um, I think from a lender's perspective, Obviously, they're just trying to understand what kind of coverage they can get, what kind of uh, support the, the the real estate will will provide, which is driven by the rents that can be achieved at the property. Um, but in an environment where interest rates have have gone up as much as they have, 
Um, proceeds are coming down, so equity is a greater amount of equity is required from developers, from from borrowers. But I think it's interesting within the retail sector specifically as as a financing vehicle. So this is CBRE data, so this is not the entire market, but it's sixty five billion dollars of um, of financing last year. So it's a, a, a sample size that's large enough to be. I think instructive. Uh, our overall volume last year was down twenty percent after being a, a dramatic, um, you know, record first half of the year. The, the rapid rate increases brought the volume down, and at the end of the year, overall volume was down twenty percent. Retail was actually the the least impacted of of, of any property type. That was down one percent. Uh, contrast that with office being down forty seven percent. What I would attribute that to is lenders have had a renewed interest and appetite in financing retail properties. Uh, and that's partially driven by the fact that retail was more prepared to handle the rate increases because the, the negative leverage that multifamily and industrial have experienced was not as uh, dramatic in retail where you had a higher cap rate, you had a little more room in your debt coverage ratios to, to absorb some of those increases in, in interest rates. And so I think investors saw that as an opportunity and appetite to invest you talked about the um, the the supply issues. There's been very little retail built over the last few years for a variety of reasons. I think lenders saw retailers come through COVID and come through the other side. I mean, if you go back three years on the front end of COVID, everybody thought every retailer was going to shut their doors and never open uh, for business ever again. Here we are, all time record, all time record uh, low uh, vacancy, and lenders uh, acknowledge that and recognize that and have. Renewed interest and appetite in retail. Now, it's certainly um, selective in some respects. I mean, they they like grocery anchored. They like uh, uh, you know the pad sites with restaurants, obviously. Um, but even even in that mid box space, there's been enough sustainability that lenders are comfortable again. Can I just add a, a few anecdotes. Um, we've seen the same thing in dramatic, dramatically increased appetite for retail loans. Uh, over the past six months, as we've tried to go and refinance several of our projects, on an office project, we are just begging to get one offer that sort of meets our criteria to refinance something. We went out on a shopping center uh, in St. George 45 days ago, got 11 offers from uh, life insurance companies. We were blown away. All that met or exceeded what we were expecting. We immediately went out with like six shopping centers. We just looked at the, like the next year and said, go out right now. Even though rates are high, we just saw so much competition. Um, and so I think that we'll see what happens with the rates, whether they come down. I mean, treasuries come down. You'd expect rates to come down as well. But the overall appetite, I think what happened is so many of these banks and financial institutions had no retail for so long. Now they're looking at it and saying, whoa, look at our portfolio. You know, we have 2% of our portfolios in retail. Let's double down into that space. The, the one um, quote that I loved, our CFO was talking to a lender, uh, and after that lender sent us a really aggressive quote on a loan, his comment was, yeah, I guess retail doesn't suck. So if that's the takeaway uh, from this whole conversation is that retail doesn't suck, the lenders are seeing it too. Yeah, we'll, we'll retitle the, uh, the, the breakout session here to retail doesn't suck. So appreciate that. Hey, a question from the audience and kind of ties into what we were going to get to, uh, that, you know, given, you know, what's going on with lending and so forth, what is kind of an open question for everybody. So, you know, Danny, I had it kind of on your list, but what new projects are you aware of, you know, outside of just kind of single tenant net lease type of construction 
which seems to be, you know, the there's a lot of that activity going on. But as far as larger projects, I know you guys are involved in a few. And then we can kind of just move down. Are there are there kind of hallmark or important projects in your all's mind uh, that are coming online here that we can be aware of? Sure. I can think of probably four that we're doing. Well, three and a half. Uh, the first is Holiday Hills, which is the redevelopment of Cottonwood Mall. Um, I personally think that repositioning and redeveloping malls is one of the greatest opportunities in real estate in America. Where else can you find huge assemblages of land that already have infrastructure that are already in good demographic neighborhoods? I mean, Hall at Cottonwood Mall was a perfect example. We're now underway eventually on our first phase. That project uh, in the end, I think will become, you know, outside of maybe downtown and Sugar House, one of the main hubs in Utah for high-end food, retail, uh, and services. We're shortly we'll announce about a dozen new retail deals in addition to the the housing. So I think that's going to have a dramatic pull and sort of change the landscape of what's happening on the east side of Salt Lake City. That's one uh, desert color uh, commercial. That's a part of a huge master plan community in St. George. There's a 180 acre portion of a, of, of a shopping center that, that we're involved in. That once again, bringing in several uh, large entertainment groups and grocery that I think will create um, a regional hub for Washington County for entertainment and food as well. Uh, a third would be a Vineyard Town Station. So you know, everyone's familiar with Vineyard, the city of Vineyard. In 2002, there were 200 people living in Vineyard. Now there's 22,000. Uh, Woodbury partnered with Flagship Homes on about 400 acres uh, of land, which is really the next um, half of the remaining land in Vineyard. Uh, a lot of it is housing. We can do 12,000 units of housing, which is just sort of a draw-dropping number, number. But in addition to you know, a few hundred thousand square feet of retail, Vineyard doesn't have any retail, so I think that will also create um, a center of gravity. And then fourth, you know, just a project that we're continuing that's sort of, once again, an interesting anecdote. Uh, Canyon Creek Shopping Center, that's our big shopping center in Spanish Fork. We have just under a million square feet, and that project is 100% full, which is amazing. A million square feet, 100% full. Right now, we're negotiating deals for 11 new pad buildings. Well, it's an existing project, but that just sort of speaks to the demand. You know, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we'll do all 11, but those are, those are real deals active today that just sort of shows uh, tenant demand and, and going into these sort of expanding areas across the Wasatch Front. Tanner, do you have something to weigh in on there? Uh, yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, urban retail, the amount of urban retail getting built right now is at an all-time high. I mean, um, if you haven't been to the Post District yet, it's a phenomenal project. The amount of ground for retail that they have, um, bringing in a lot of first-to-market concepts, exciting to see what that brings to the state. Uh, the West Quarter Phase 1 is already complete. They have 11,000 square feet of retail on the ground floor there. They already have one restaurant open. Um, phase 2 of the West Quarter will be two or three times the size of the first phase. Um, in addition, what Troy's doing, redeveloping a lot of Gateway and the, the amount of office and retail that they've brought into the Gateway Mall. Um, obviously, we saw Gateway go through a major slump and it almost feels like a new project since, uh, honestly, Troy started working on it. So almost. I'll give, uh, I'll give him a nod on that one. And then just the amount of mixed-use apartment projects. You know, Unlike Denver, who primarily built a lot of office over the last 10 years, Salt Lake City's pretty much only built multifamily downtown. Almost every single one of those projects has retail underneath it. And so just our downtown is seeing an unprecedented amount of new, you know, gray shell space hitting the market right now. 
Thanks, Tanner. Yeah, it's true. You know, the, the, the multifamily component added to retail really, really does um, bolster the retail piece. So when you look at projects like the Gateway, where we have this built-in multifamily piece, it just made sense to, uh, to try to look at uh, other options or, or opportunities there. And obviously, we kind of transitioned, pivoted away from retail. Uh, what was once a 700,000 square foot retail project is now about 200,000 square feet of retail totally uh, doable. And now we have 500,000 feet of life science and biotech. So um, the other thing Danny mentioned was the opportunity of redeveloping malls. Uh, I work with the, uh, the team at Valley Fair, obviously the Gateway and also Provo Town Center. And I mean, we just announced the uh, signing of Target at, at Provo Town Center. We're really excited about the redevelopment of that project. And you know, to Danny's point, we've got almost 40 acres that is, uh, that is well positioned right on I-15, incredible visibility, um, close proximity to uh, to a lot of other um, large regional and national retailers, and we're really excited about that project. And again, that w- that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for uh, you know for 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 the mall being there, right? So um, so these parking lots are starting to be repurposed. We're working with uh, Deloitte Hansen's team at Valley Fair, where they're taking the east parking lot of that project and building multifamily. Uh, we'll send a rendering out to the community soon, but it's an exciting project. I mean, they're adding hundreds and hundreds of rooftops and doors. There on the east side, there along two fifteen. Um, another switching gears a little bit on topic here, um, kind of back to uh, to lending and and uh, financial issues. Question from the audience is: uh, What's the expected? This is, a, I'm sure, kind of a finger in the wind question. But what's your expected expectation on uh, stable? You know, where interest rates may stabilize? Are you are we likely to see anything in those you know low three to fours like we were kind of getting you know spoiled with? Uh, yeah, I'll try to take uh, that question. So we're still in an inverted yield curve environment, uh, one of the most inverted yield curves that we've ever seen historically. So today, the 30-day uh, term SOFR, which is the index of choice for most construction and bridge lending, is roughly 466. Uh, we've seen some material um, rally in the in the long end of the bond curve over the last few days, uh, driven by the turmoil in the banking industry uh, that you're all familiar with and was alluded to in the last panel where the 10 years in the mid three. So we got a 100 basis point plus delta between the short end of the curve and the long, long end of the curve. Um, uh, the latest data I saw, which was yesterday, which is maybe d- dated as of today with the uh, the updated you know, turmoil in the market, um, was a 92% expectation of the market of a 25 basis point increase by the Fed at the next uh, uh, federal funds meeting, which I think is May 22nd. And then uh, about an 80... Uh, 5% uh, likelihood at the next meeting in, um, I think it's early June. Um, so but over the, the turmoil over the last couple of days may start to uh, slow down the rate of increase from the Fed. Uh, it was only an 8% chance. So, so the 25 basis point increase would take the Fed funds rate up to 5%. Another 25 would take it up to uh, five and a quarter. Um, the market's indicating less or eight percent chance or or less that we are five percent or above by the end of the year. So I think we are nearing the end of the the rate increases on the short end of the curve, and we start to see that coming back down. In terms of the long end of the curve, there's a lot of different um, things at play. Obviously, the the turmoil in the the banking industry. You, you've got today's news as it relates to Russia shooting down a, a U.S. drone. I mean, so some of those geopolitical concerns that uh, have have historically been a, a driving force for people to put money in in uh, the bond market as as a, as a flight to safety. Um, I think you've got a variety of of influences going on. We were at the MBA last month in in 
in San Diego and we, we pulled every lender that we, we spoke to. Where, where, where is your internal economist projecting uh, 10-year rates to be at the end of the year? We heard everything. I think the tightest was principal at two and three quarters. I think the highest, yeah, uh, that was pretty remarkable. I think the highest was um, four and a quarter, four and a half. Um, and so honestly, I think nobody really knows. Um, I think the internal, from a CBRE perspective, our, our view is that We'll be in the low threes from an index rate. Obviously, to your question in terms of all-in rates, we've seen over the last few days spreads widen out a little bit to offset some of the rally in the bond market. Um, but I think all-in all-in rates will be lower uh, in my expectation in in the in the coming twelve to eighteen months. I think the next the immediate few months uh, we may not see. Uh, again, we've seen dramatic improvement or, or movement over the last few days. We'll see if that continues. Uh, but generally speaking, I think I think long-term rates are going to come down. Just, um, I I agree with what you're saying. I'll regurgitate some information that I got from Randy Woodbury, who's our chairman. He's the also the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, which is one of the regional banks that sort of informs in uh, the Fed in Washington. Uh, what he told me echoes that sentiment that. That's the big question. Are rates going to go up 50 basis points or 25 basis points in the next meeting? But they're still going up. It's sort of puzzling to me. Everyone like gets so excited that they're only going up 25 basis points. Like They're still going up, guys. But the one thing that I thought was interesting that he told me is the general sentiment is a return to normality, if there is such a thing, is years off. That the Fed is not expecting inflation to get to a more normalized 2 or 3% until 2026. So this environment that we're in, like this isn't, in my mind, a thing where you can just say, hey, I'm going to wait this out for six months and everything is going to be better. I think we're in a new medium-term normalcy. And so you got to adapt to what's happening today is my only point. I, I, would, I would echo that. I, I think you're spot on. I think they're higher for longer uh, in, in some respects. Uh, and, and part of it is the return to normalcy. I mean, these rates that we're in today, uh, we're, we're locking deals in, call it the mid fives all in, uh, you know, early in my career, we used to high five each other when we got a deal in the mid fives. Right. I mean, that was, that was, that was cause for celebration for years. I celebrated the fact that we, we locked a deal at a 392 treasury on, on a, on a deal that we did the takeout loan on and how, how great and how lucky and how fortunate we were we to get a 10 year treasury below, below 4%. Obviously we all got uh, spoiled by by a sub 1% 10 year treasury and you know 3% all in interest rates. I don't think we're returning to that anytime soon. I agree with that. Um, and so part of it is, and frankly, I think retail is, is better insulated than other product types. This goes back to the previous commentary uh, relative to the arbitrage we saw between cap rate and, and interest rate. Where there's greater distress in my mind is, is a lot of the value add multifamily that was very uh, aggressive in terms of of leverage points uh, that was relying on on the cheap cost of capital. Uh, there was a lot less of that activity in the retail sector. Okay, uh, just before we switch off of this topic, because it kind of relates to this, and I think is near and dear to a lot of our hearts. Um, given what's going on with rates, what I guess kind of a two part question: What do you see? What is your opinion of what cap rates may be doing? Uh, you know, in the in the near future, and also, as it relates to Utah and our market here, do you see how do you see cap rates in Utah comparing with you know competitive comp competing regions or states around us? Feel free, go well, ahead, Troy. 
the second question, I mean, it used to be that you could find deals in Utah, right? You felt like you're, you're buying the same credit in Utah and you're getting it at 50 or 75 bips uh, better. Uh, that's no longer the case, right? We have institutional eyes on this state now. And so cap rates in our market compare very you know, well with cap rates in other markets. I don't think we really have that kind of on-sale type environment um, existing anymore. And obviously, cap rates have got to go up, right? Um, we're going to talk about this. Is it? You know, we talk about what a great landlord's market it is today. Well, that's that's the landlord who owns a project that is is built today. Um, the guy who's trying to put a shovel in the ground that's not a landlord's market, right? He's he's dealing with a bunch of headwinds, rising construction costs, land costs, lending costs. I mean, it, it's it's a tough tough sledding for that guy. But uh, but yeah, cap rates end up part of that pro forma and. Ultimately, if you're looking at building a project and selling it, you know, immediately after it's completed, well, you're rethinking everything right now because cap rates aren't coming down anytime soon, right? We're in a we're in a new world. Yeah, I'll, I'll share. Um, so CBRE did a, a cap rate survey second half of 2022 uh, throughout the nation, including all the Western markets, um, and it it demonstrated that the cap rate had increased across the board, uh, really nationally, as a as a function of the interest rates. There's no other. Uh, way that they could go. But the delta of increase in Utah was much smaller than we saw in, in certain markets like Denver, Phoenix, uh, elsewhere in the West. And that premium from a, from a California to Utah cap rate is, is much smaller today than, than what it has been historically. I think one of the reasons for that, um, and it, I think it relates to what they were talking about in the last section, uh, when, when an investor is capping uh, a real estate deal in Utah, they're not just um, capitalizing the in-place cash flow, they're capitalizing their confidence in the future. And I think uh, their belief in Utah is a market with growth. The fundamentals here are very healthy. We, we talk about Danny's comment about the uh, the vacancy rate. They they view Utah as, as a safer harbor, if you will, uh, which is going to obviously drive cap rates down to your point of institutional equity coming into this market in a, in a big way. It's, it's more on the map than it ever has been. Um, I think the part of the challenge is just scarcity of 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 product. It's trying to find people that are willing to sell. We've got a lot of family offices, great groups like Woodbury that are generational owners that are, are going to hold on to a lot of their real estate. We never sell. That's, right. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, but but the reality is that is uh, uh, a a reality of this market is we've got a lot a lot of of long term owners. Understandably so. It's a great investment. It's a it's a great opportunity to to hold those assets and, and see material improvement over over generations. Cool. Uh, we'll switch gears a little bit here, uh, Tanner. I want to ask you this one. Um, two part question. Uh, first one is just overall as it relates to uh, mixed use or urban retail. What trends are you seeing in that sector? And a follow-up, which is a question from the audience, is uh, what does it take? It says, you see a lot of ground floor retail below multifamily projects that remains vacant. What does it take for retail and multifamily developments to work? Yeah, uh, two great questions. Uh, Doing a lot of work downtown right now. Um, The deals that are getting done in mixed-use projects, the landlords are putting in way more TI than they originally intended. Um, typically in the burbs right now, if I had five, you know, brand new buildings in South Jordan to lease up, you can pretty much offer the minimal TI to get a building leased up and it's going to lease itself up. Um, if you're in the downtown right now, 
your typical TI is, is covering a gray shell or covering a vanilla shell build out at a minimum, which now is running 70 to 90 bucks a square foot. Um, we saw this coming in Denver. We noticed uh, that a lot of Denver landlords were leasing to a little bit more regional credit or mom and pop credit, and they just don't have the funds to build out a store in a gray shell. Um, which right now, you know, your your base restaurant out of a gray shell is probably costing bare bones restaurant one hundred and seventy five to two hundred dollars a square foot. So just a, a forty and fifty dollar TI just doesn't get it done anymore. And every landlord wants you know some sort of boutique nice concept that feels like an amenity to their project. Um, and if you want that, that's going to take just a stronger TI to incentivize a lot of these tenants to open up underneath. Um, uh, what is a challenging build out from the get go, whether you're venting, you know, a, a restaurant hood five floors up, at least, um, trying to throw in a grease trap underneath or into a parking garage. And then you're banking on tenants or sorry, not tenants, customers, um, in a market where historically we're used to surface parking. It's, it's a challenge to then tell your customers, Hey, you need to go park in a parking garage, possibly pay to park. And uh, and then still expect to then come and pay to to be a tenant in an urban environment, or be a customer in an urban environment. I don't know if I tackled both, but the only thing I would add is that you know cities love to see retail on the ground floor. They want to create walkable environments, and that's just it's this beautiful picture of people walking their dogs and you know walking down and shopping at the local boutique. The reality is these developers, they for the most part, and I may be speaking to some of them here, you know, they, they made their money building apartments or, or condos. I mean, the, the the retail becomes an afterthought. And so there's not a lot of incentive for for that developer to go throw a bunch of TI, as Tanner as Tana referenced, to make a small low credit deal. And as a result, we end up with vacancy. And no other way to say it. And the other thing is scarcity. So if there's if there's a a traditional retail option available, that retailer will, will end up gravitating towards the traditional option every time. Uh, they don't want to compete or they don't need to compete with, with tenants for parking or you know, signage. Or, you know, the list goes on and on if they can find a traditional shopping center with a grocery anchor, that kind of thing. So that's one of the challenges. Like you look at Fourth South, Fourth South has some of the strongest traffic in Utah, and yet we have quite a bit of retail vacancy on the main floor in Fourth South. The, the only thing I would add, like cities love it, um, for a lot of the reasons you said, uh, having done many uh, mixed-use projects, the only ones that pencil are typically when cities provide a big subsidy. So if the city wants it, they're going to have to subsidize it. In a suburban-dominated market like Utah right now, that tends to be the only way to really make it work. I'm curious how a lot of these projects downtown, I mean, I guess they're so dense. You're right. You make the money off of apartments, but otherwise the density comes at a cost and it's with a subsidy that you can make it happen, which is usually some type of TIF financing. I mean, Vineyard's done that. Holiday's done that. Orem's done that. And that's what really allows you to, to create the density, to create the experience, because otherwise in our markets, the numbers don't really work without it. Thank you. Uh, Danny, question for you. Uh, what changes are you seeing developers and landlords make in their negotiations and lease agreements in response to the interest rates and just overall market conditions of the past year? Yeah. Um, I think adjusting to inflation has already been a theme that we've heard. 
Uh, we talked about increasing rents. That's one of the pieces. One of that increasing rents is driven by scarcity of space. Another is by increase, increasing cost, which means that you just have to increase the rent to make it pencil. Um, how that's adapted, but the other one is ongoing uh, inflation and rent increases. That right now is one of the biggest struggles uh, we have with retailers is what's an appropriate rental increase on an annual or, or a five-year basis. I mean, I think we're all used to, oh, every five years, 10%. But when inflation is running not long ago, eight, now what, 6% point is it's really high and not looking to come down dramatically anytime soon. Uh, that's one thing that we're really pushing for and trying to re-educate, grapple with tenants on a 3% annual increase in a minimum. And then looking at uh, renewals. Renewals, you know, historically, I always thought it was crazy. I'll get a 10-year lease and give me four 10-year renewals. I'm like, you're going to type the space for 50 years at a 2% increase? Like, that's what they would ask for. Uh, so we're pushing back a lot on renewals. Often one thing we're doing with some success is saying, look, if you want a renewal, it's going to increase. The, 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 the rate is going to be pegged to the greater of, let's say, 15% increase or CPI inflation. Because if we believe, which I do, that we'll still we're going to still be in a medium term at least inflationary environment, then that's what we need. So I think uh, renewals is a hot topic in my mind, uh, rent increases, and then getting creative to make the pro forma's pencil. Um, I think we already talked about you know it's tough to be a landlord building. We're feeling that too. Rising interest rates, one of the unique environments situations we're in right now, is often we can get a reasonable unlevered yield which is still above today's cap rates today. So your development spread is positive, but your interest rate or long-term debt, your interest constant, which is you know, your interest rate plus debt, it gets upside down. So all of a sudden you're looking at your cash on cash, your levered return, and that's lower than your unlevered yield. I mean, this is very prevalent clearly in like industrial and apartments today, but it's happening in retail. So I think finding ways to get creative in a few instances, that may mean as a retailer or as a landlord on a new project, we can say the only way to make this work and to get your butt in this project is you just buy the land because a retailer's pro forma is different. So we're doing that on occasion. You know, it's, it's tough as a landlord because you're giving up long-term control, but finding ways to get creative through maybe selling the land to a really strategic anchor, uh, looking at rent increases or unique structures of, I mean, we've been doing so many different structures to try to make it work. Reverse build to suits, uh, reverse ground lease built to suits with the capture contribution, all different metrics, just trying to um, dial in on the different components of return to somehow make it work for both parties. Uh, I was going to just add on to that uh, pushing length of term. I mean, even just that 10-year term to a 12-year term or to a 15-year term, uh, just amortizing that over a longer period of time, helping out, uh, pushing more and more tenants to ground lease, taking the risk off the developer. Uh, and then we're even seeing tenants buy down their ground lease rate, um, writing a check right at the beginning of their term to try to get that initial rent down. Any other thoughts on that topic, Doug? Or anyone? Troy, I'm asking you kind of the flip side of that coin. Uh, someone works with a lot of tenants. Are there, you know, what are kind of the... Uh, what are the things that they're seeing landlords counter and push on that are tough for them? How are they maneuvering and making that work uh, you know, from their shoes? Security deposits. No, sorry. That was inappropriate. That was a look. 
Uh, no, it's it's tough, right? As a retailer, it, we. You know, retailers remember the way things were 10 years ago and they want to stay there. Um, they look at, uh, you know, those 2% annual increases, actually not 2%, but rather that 10% bump every five years. They're still digging their heels in. Um, as we deal with less and less opportunity for retailers and, you know, fewer and fewer ocu- or vacancy, then they, they got to turn, right? I mean, we're, we're even seeing retailers like Ross decide, okay, fine, we're, we're going to stop being the, the bully at the, in the play yard and playground and, and we'll start conceding to some of these matters. Um, uh, you know, the retailers I'm working with are getting creative on the, on the back end, right? They're looking at their return that they're looking for and deciding, okay, well, maybe our occupancy costs can be slightly higher. And that's where I think we're in a, a kind of a danger zone. You know, you're seeing retailers really stretch to make deals right now because their, you know, their their growth has to occur. And and you know, I'm seeing deals like uh, I'll take uh, Saratoga Springs as an example. You've got new construction in Saratoga Springs with retailers, you know, selling soda, paying fifty bucks a foot. Guys, that that is unsustainable. I buy. I mean, I I drink a lot of diet coke, but I, I still don't think that there's a way that works. So so I think there's there's a, there's a there's a downside to this, which is you know while while retailers are adjusting their expectations and doing everything they can to continue to grow in this environment, um, it's going to come to the detriment of many retailers, and and I think we will see some 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 failures. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing people pay higher rents in Saratoga Springs than Sugar House. And we all thought that was the sexiest market in Salt Lake City. People were pegging themselves being in Sugar House miles away from Sugar House. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the burbs are far more expensive than a lot of our urban markets right now. Um, sorry, you just create a thought. Sorry to Saratoga Springs, by the way. I just want to throw that Hopefully out nobody there. nobody here is uh, yeah. from Saratoga Apologize. Springs City. It's a beautiful. It's grown a lot, though, to your point. <laughs> um, Looking ahead, kind of a closing thought. By the way, audience, if anyone has any other questions they'd like to ask as we kind of get to the end of this, please text them in, or I'm sorry, not text them, scan them, scan the QR code and send them in. Um, looking ahead, the next five to 10 years, this is just total for fun projections. What, what trends or things do you think you want to put on your prediction hat? Uh, do you, you see happening? We can just start with you, Doug, and go down. Um, it's a, it's a great question. I think, uh, You've got a fundamental strength in Utah that that services all sectors of real estate. You've got uh, a diverse economy. You've got high uh, population growth. We've consistently got uh, healthy uh, job growth, unemployment rate, and I don't I don't see that changing in the next five to ten years. I think the fundamentals, the demographics, youngest nation, youngest um, you know youngest age in the country by two years. I mean, I think we have a lot of strengths that, that drive the fundamentals of real estate that, that fuel retail. I mean, we're going to have more rooftops that fuel retail. Um, I think, I think part of it is continuing to change the narrative about what Salt Lake is. They talked about the Olympics. I think, I think that was a, a turning point in this market in many ways where people kind of came into the market and saw what we have here. I think COVID Kind of put fuel onto the fire, right? Where, uh, where, where this work from home environment, where people could live in different places of the country, they saw what we have to offer here. Um, I, I see that continuing to to expand as people recognize what we have in Utah, um, and I think that that supports retail going forward. I, I think if I see concerns, um, it's again battling those perception issues, right? And um, you know, for years I've gone to national conferences, uh, and it used to be you said you were the guy from Salt Lake, and they looked for who else to talk to. 
Uh, in the last few years, uh, you say you're from Salt Lake and they're pretty excited to talk with you. But in the last year or so, the number one thing that I hear, um, if, if somebody says, okay, you're from Salt Lake, it's one of two things. You're all going to die because the lake's drying up and it's going to be arsenic and whatever. So that's, that's a perception issue we have to address. Um, and two, it hasn't changed. It's been our, our perception issue for, for as long as Salt Lake's been a thing weird alcohol laws. And that impacts retail in a very real way. That impacts the, the restaurant industry in a very real, real way. To me, that impacts growth and development in a really very real way. I had a, uh, an equity investor in town from, from Houston last week and we were having dinner and couldn't have been more effusive in his praise of Salt Lake City. And he says, love everything about it. Love the, the pro-growth government. Love the, the, the economy. Love everything about Salt Lake. We talk about the, um, the free market mindset that we have here. And, and his comment, again, outsider perspective coming into this market, it seems the only thing that, that's regulated is mar- in, in Utah you know, comes from the tap, right? And he, his, his observation was, I think he was very surprised uh, in multiple settings in, in downtown uh, of what it looked and felt like. And, and again, it's that perception issue. But I think we could further improve that dynamic with with some adjustment in in our legislation as it relates to alcohol laws other thoughts or predictions you look down the road five or ten years i think from a development perspective if you want to see where development is going to happen follow city politics we've seen certain cities flip to being extremely anti-development you know in the past two or three years and those cities won't see the growth. And maybe that's what they want. And that's what the citizens want. And so that's what's going to happen. It's going to strengthen the incumbents. I mean, the best thing being an existing landlord is when you put a big fence of restrictions around you and you have what you have. Um, but looking at new growth, the, the cities that are being creative, creating incentives, that's where you're going to see the development. Um, there's still places where that's happening. A lot of it's in Utah County. But I still see Utah County continuing to strengthen relative to population and retail and, and retail because that follows population. Yeah, I'm excited for the future of, of Utah and, and retail in particular. I think from a retailer standpoint, those retailers who continue to adapt and change to you know, changing consumer habits will continue to be successful. I mean, during the pandemic, we talked about adapt or die. Uh, we've seen a lot of retailers struggle through the pandemic, but many who adapted uh, have come out a lot stronger and uh, better for it. So I think uh, if, if I could make a prediction, it's those retailers who continue to embrace the, uh, you know, that adapt or die philosophy will be successful. And I think Utah retail will be very vibrant five years from now, 10 years from now, now 11 years from now, I, I think I'm going to mic drop and uh, no, I'm kidding. It'll be great forever, guys. Um, Amazon killed off every concept that it was going to kill off five years ago. Uh, the ones that are left today are growing. I mean, the big box retailers that we all thought were shrinking, the Best Buys, the World Markets, the Kohl's of the world, they're doing deals. Um, I just got back from ICSC Monterey a couple of weeks ago. I've never left an ICSC with a more optimistic point of view from uh, tenant rep and landlord, just both sides of the coin, very optimistic on leasing. Investment guys, not so much. Um, but leasing in general, very positive. Uh, you know, I think as the millennial generation continues to spend more money and Gen Z starts getting actual spending dollars, um, 
I'm a part of that generation. We love our pets. You know, uh, the pet entertainment or pet retail categories and entertainment retail categories, what they call it? retailtainment, um, going to continue to drive that. We're ahead. I don't think anyone in my generation knows how to cook at home. So we spend all of our dollars eating out. So, you know, food and bev is going to be a huge portion of those dollars spent in retail. And that's just going to continue to climb. Perfect. Um, we'll wrap things up here. Uh, appreciate everybody attending. Hope this was helpful for you. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, any final words from anybody? Are we good? Okay. We'll adjourn and head back to the main room. Thank you.